Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, you can open up to, to John 15. And I realized once I got back to my seat after announcements that I brought this card up for a reason. And if you, if you would like one of these cards uh, to remember, remember to pray for the Wolverines, we have a stack of them back uh, on uh, the, the, the counter there uh, where you'd pick up a bulletin. So you can uh, grab one of those on your way out if you so desire. But uh, we're continuing our study through John. And as you are probably already there at this point in time, sometimes we don't think about or or realize that that there are some pieces of information that have a a moral weightiness and a a moral significance to them that that cannot be ignored. And even even the world comprehends the the reality of the, the implications of some uh, bits of knowledge, and this is, I think, easy easy to see when it comes to, to uh, mandatory reporting laws. So there's a variety of uh, laws throughout the the country where certain professions, such as doctors or teachers, pastors, uh, psychologists, uh, where if they become aware, if they gain knowledge about abuse or something that is taking place within a home that needs to be reported, uh, they are under, uh, by law, obligated to report that to the authorities. Uh, there, there is a moral obligation to the knowledge that, that comes uh, to them. So if a teacher is aware of a, of a student being physically abused, uh, that, that teacher can be held liable for not passing that information along to uh, to the police. Uh, and so there is a morality of knowledge that is on display uh, and that some knowledge must be acted upon. Uh, there's other knowledge that must not be acted upon. If your uncle uh, is in charge of a publicly traded company and he lets you know that the company is just about to declare bankruptcy uh, and the stock market uh, price is probably going to, to plunge, if you go and act upon that knowledge, that would be known as insider trading. So there's knowledge that you are obligated not to act upon. Uh, so there is, a, there is a moral implication to knowledge that we often don't think about. Uh, and a good uh, amount of the knowledge that we come across and deal with uh, on a day-in and day-out basis is, uh, is neutral. And I'm very thankful for that because sometimes when you, if you were to, to get knowledge like that, something just comes at you and suddenly like, I have to do something with this and I have to choose if I'm, if I'm going to act upon it or not act upon it. What am I called to do in this situation with this knowledge? Uh, and the, the moral implications of knowledge uh, are, are significant, and they force us to contemplate and make a decision on how we're going to respond. Uh, and uh, once you know something, you can't unknow it, right? It would be nice if you could hit the, the rewind button and say, please don't tell me that. But, it, but it, once I know, I have to do something with that. This is the moral implication. I think that's why Solomon in Ecclesiastes 1.18, he says, Because in much wisdom there is much vexation, and whoever increases knowledge increases pain or increases sorrow. Uh, there, there's a, a realm where the more that you know, the more that you, you begin to realize and you, uh, your conscience is bound to act. And perhaps you haven't realized it or thought about it much, but a, a knowledge of who Jesus is 
comes with a significant amount of moral implications to it. Last week we talked about the fine print of the gospel as Jesus is is interacting and teaching his disciples as they're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane after the Last Supper. Uh, he, he's dealing with and talking them through the finer points of the fine points of the gospel, the fine print of if you follow after Christ, the world is going to hate you. But those are the, the implications. If you if you take up your cross and begin to walk after Jesus, the world is going to see that uh, and there's going to be animosity towards all who do that. These are the, the, the finer points that, that are not often emphasized uh, in American Christianity, but, but Jesus wants his disciples to know, uh, to know it and to go in eyes wide open. It, here's the cost of following him. And there's ramifications of, of knowing who he is, the ramifications of reading his word, of hearing him speak. And I know we're, we're parachuting back down into this passage. And and Jesus is, is outlining all of this for his disciples. And last week, as we looked at verses 17 to, to 21, Jesus told the disciples they can expect hatred from the world because the world first hated their Lord, their master. And they, they crucified and, and murdered our Lord. So we can't expect much better treatment. And in those verses, Jesus also gave three theological reasons of why the, the world hates everybody who follows after Christ. And those theological reasons, if you look back at those verses, verse 19, it says, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. That was the first theological reason for the, the world uh, having a hatred and animosity toward Christ and his people is because Christ has called us to be apart from the world, separated and distinct. Uh, we're to be following Christ, which is the opposite direction that the world is traveling in. The second theological reason is that we belong to Jesus. Verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That we belong to Christ. We serve him now. And that's going to cause a rift between us and the world. And the third theological reason that he gave was found in verse 21. All these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. And that's quite a a summary of why the the world hates Christ uh, and all of those who follow him is they don't know God the Father. They don't know the one who sent Jesus, so that they are uh, anta- attacking uh, Jesus himself and all those who would follow him. And then verses 22 to 25, which we're going to study this morning, Jesus is going to, to continue along this, this train of thought. And he's going to continue with the, the fine print, but he's going to be explaining the moral implications of, that every single person must reckon with. Uh, that Jesus entering into the world uh, has certain implications and uh, it has things that we need to, to deal with and to respond to. There's ramifications for each and every single person. And this is what Jesus says in verses 22 to 25. He continues. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But this happened 
to fulfill the word that is written in their law, they hated me without cause. And so as Jesus is instructing his disciples here on how they are to interact with the world, he explains the ramifications of his own life and ministry and how they present the world with moral implications to the knowledge of Christ. And that was different for them at that exact period and time because they saw Jesus with their own eyes. They heard Jesus with their own ears. And that brought an even greater implication for them. But what about us? We, we haven't seen or heard Jesus with our own uh, body. But we have read his word. And we, we have beheld him in the written word of God. And so there are implications for us as well. Everybody who reads about his life or hears about it, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, everybody who is uh, given that knowledge, there's a, there's a moral implication for knowing that and hearing that. We have to do something with that. So what are these moral implications of knowing about Jesus? And in, in this passage, we see three inescapable implications of our hearing and seeing Christ in the Scriptures. Three inescapable implications. And the first one is found in verses 22 and 23. That the words of Christ remove excuses. Jesus speaks in in a hypothetical statement, another conditional clause, which we we saw him use in in the previous section. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now that they now they have no excuse for their sin. So he uses the word they there. Who is, who is they? Who is he talking about? In the previous section, uh, he was d- speaking of the world, right? And the world includes all those uh, who do not trust in God, uh, who, who are rebelling against God, all of those unbelievers in the world. Uh, and he's speaking about the entire uh, body of unbelievers throughout uh, the world. But he's also, I think, specifically addressing the nation of Israel. Uh, as we're going to see later on, because in verse 25, the they is going to continue. And he says, in their law. Uh, and so the, the Jewish leaders uh, who had the scriptures and who understood the plan of God as it had been revealed to them for uh, 1,500 years nearly, uh, prior to the coming of Christ, they have a knowledge of, about uh, the Messiah that the Gentiles did not have. They had a greater knowledge, uh, and they had a greater accountability for that knowledge. And Jesus is saying that if, they had, if he had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. Well, what does that mean? He's not saying that they would have been perfect and with Without any blame, uh, really, I think the emphasis is they would not be as guilty as they currently are, uh, because Jesus has come and has presented Himself to them, uh, and they, with full knowledge of what He has taught and what He has done, they have rejected Him. They, they understood everything that He was teaching, and knowing full well everything that He taught, they said, "No, we don't want that." If you keep your your finger here and, and go back with me to to Matthew's Gospel. The, the crowds of people understood that, that Jesus' teaching was more significant than the teaching of the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his own time. Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, verses 28 and 29, says, Now it happened that when Jesus was, had finished these words, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. There was, a, there was a, a significance, there was a weightiness to what Jesus said that ex, far exceeded 
the religious leaders of his own time. But then if you, if you move forward just a few chapters in Matthew's gospel to Matthew 11, Jesus is going to condemn the religious leaders and the, the nation of Israel because they have rejected him, even though they recognize, hey, there's something different about his teaching. They still reject him. Matthew 11, verse 20. Jesus says, then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So he's saying these Gentile cities that were known for their wickedness, if I had gone there and preached and taught and done the same things that I did in your presence, they would have repented. But you haven't. Verse 22, Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Now, that's a profound statement, isn't it? Because the, the, the picture of judgment in the Old Testament is Sodom and Gomorrah. And here Jesus is saying that's going to be, it's going to be better for them on the day of judgment than it will be for you. Because of what they have seen and heard directly from Christ. There is a moral implication for the knowledge of Jesus. And you and I have not uh, heard him teach audibly. We've not seen his miracles. We are not uh, eye and ear witnesses to who he was and all that he did. But we've read about his life and ministry and we are held accountable for what he has done. And Jesus' conclusion about all of this is that the the nation of Israel and and the, the world, those who have seen and beheld him, they are without excuse. They are not going to be able to say, well, I didn't know. And really, Romans 1 is going to emphasize there's nobody who has ever lived throughout all of time and uh, across space who's ever going to be able to say, I didn't know God existed. Romans 1, verses 18 through 20 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And that's exactly what uh, the nation of Israel and all of those who witnessed Christ did. That they beheld this man who they, they recognized his authoritative teaching. That this is beyond a mere man. And then they still rejected him. They suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. Because uh, that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So that they are without excuse. Everybody is accountable for that knowledge. And, and this excuse is so common, God makes sure to address it in his word. Right? You can't say, I didn't know. Everybody who's a parent has heard that excuse, right? I didn't know. I can't remember which one of my sons, as I was telling him to do something, you know, I think probably it stopped doing that. And he kept doing it. He you know, chose to ignore me. And then I come up and, and I speak to him. He says, oh, I didn't hear you. I didn't hear you say, stop doing that. And I'm like, wait a second, how, how do you know I said stop doing that? Like, so it, it becomes that evidence of like, wait, you, you heard me very, very clearly, uh, and, and you have selective hearing. But, but that excuse doesn't fly. 
You are accountable for what you hear. And many uh, will try uh, to say before a holy God, I didn't know you existed. Romans 1 takes that and says, no, you know that God exists. You look at the creation around you. You know that he exists. And Jesus here is saying, nobody during his own time is going to be able to say, I didn't know that I was supposed to look to Jesus. I didn't know he was the Savior. No one's going to be able to say that. All excuses are removed. And then in verse 23, Jesus is going to get down to the root of why do people try to use that excuse? Why why do they go there? Well, what's the root of their unbelief? Verse 23, he says, he who hates me hates my father also. In the flow of, of thought, Jesus is, is saying they, they don't want to listen. They, they try to make excuses, but no excuse is acceptable. And, and what drives that is, is a hatred for God and a hatred for his son. And in John's gospel, those always go together. You can't separate those out. You can't say, I love God, but I hate his son. And this is really important because John the apostle is writing this gospel account to his people, he's writing to Jews. And the very thing that they would want to say is, yes, I'm going to love and follow God the Father, but I don't want anything to do with Jesus. John is trying to make that clear. That's not an option. You can't say, I hate and want nothing to do with, with Jesus, but I want to follow after God. No, the, the two are inseparable. If you reject the Son, you also reject the Father. And if you receive the Son, uh, you receive the Father as well. That's what was said in uh, chapter 13, verse 20, just a little bit ago from this, these words that we're seeing here. So Jesus is saying that the people of his own time will have a greater judgment because they heard and they rejected. And those of us who are reading his word, even right now, 2,000 years later, we have to understand that having this knowledge about who Jesus is and what he taught, it brings an accountability with it. That if you have heard or read these words, that you are going to stand under that same truth. That his words will either save you or they will bring a greater condemnation to you. That if you respond to the message of Jesus in faith, you will be saved. But if you hear what he says and the, the truth that he proclaims to us and then you reject it, it just brings a, a higher degree of accountability and judgment before God. You cannot unknow what you have heard about Christ. Once you've heard, you are accountable. I love what J.C. Ryle says about this. He says, let us settle it down as a first principle in our religion that religious privileges are in a certain sense very dangerous things. If they do not help us toward heaven, they will only sink us deeper into hell. They add to our responsibility. To whomsoever much is given of him, much shall be required. Luke twelve forty eight. He that dwells in a land of open Bibles and preached gospel, and yet dreams that he will stand in the judgment day on the same level with an untaught Chinese, is fearfully deceived. He will find to his own cost, except he repents, that his judgment will be according to his light. The mere fact that he had knowledge and did not improve it will of itself prove one of his greatest sins. 
And he quotes Luke 12:47, "He that knew his master's will and did it not shall be beaten with many stripes." That you are held accountable for what you know. And that's where when Jesus was walking the earth, who who were the the people that he went after the most? The Pharisees, the ones who had memorized the Torah. They memorized the first five books of the Bible. They're not obeying any of it. And then they reject him. They had the the most knowledge and were not uh, receptive to anything. And Jesus condemned them. This is a, a severe warning. And I would say this is a, this is a severe warning to every church kid. Right? If you grow up in the visible church, if you hear and uh, are over and over again present when the, the word of God is taught, you have a higher level of accountability than someone who's never darkened the door of a church. There is a, a severe accountability because of what you have heard. You can't say, I didn't know. I don't know what Jesus wants me to do. I don't know what he came to do. You can't say that. Every single person in the visible local church, whether it's here or anywhere else, has a higher level of accountability to God. Because you're saying, I'm following after him. You're identifying with his body. You're sitting under teaching. It's going to bring a greater condemnation if you reject that. And reading the Bible and then not obeying it is going to have the same effect. I love, what was Ezra's goal in life, Ezra 7.10? For Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to practice it. Study, next step is I have to live this out. And then, third step, and then to teach his statute and judgment in Israel. He understood the, the progression. I need to study, I need to obey, and then I can teach it to others. Because if I don't do that, if I skip that middle step, I just study and then pass it on to others and I'm not obeying. I'm just heaping greater condemnation upon myself. There's a moral implication to knowledge. And, and this is why we do what we do in our growth groups. Right? Our goal is to get all of us in the word, to be walking through the word of God together. And then not just say, hey, do you know the answer for the test? Right? Do you know where to find that in the Bible? That doesn't help you unless you also submit to that in the Bible, right? And you can't just say, I know where to find the answer, but it's, this, is, this is how I need to apply this truth of God's word to my life. This is how I need to grow to be shaped by my knowledge uh, of who Jesus is and what he has commanded me to do. This is so important. We strive to grow in obedience and not merely growing in knowledge. Because to only grow in knowledge is just going to to heap condemnation upon our souls. Remember that passage in Matthew. It would be better for Tyre and Sidon than those cities that Jesus went to and performed miracles in. Better for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than those who have seen and heard the word of Christ and rejected it. There's a moral accountability for our knowledge. That's the first inescapable implication that we see. The second inescapable implication that we see is found in verse 24, where the works of Christ reveal hearts. Verse 24 is another conditional statement, another hypothetical. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. 
So Jesus is going to, to say much the same thing in this verse as he did in verses 22 and 23. He's going to draw the, the moral implications of knowledge, but here it's not so much on his teaching, but upon his, his miracles. And what Jesus did when he was walking on the earth uh, set him apart from every other miracle-performing prophet prior to him. Nobody else had performed the miracles that Jesus did. If you turn back with me to John chapter 9, the man who was born blind is is speaking to the the religious leaders who are actually spiritually blind. Uh, And this man who was born blind is actually now able to see. But this is his argument uh, to the religious leaders about Jesus. He says in verse 32, Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. He's saying, what Jesus did for me has never, ever occurred in the history of creation. And the Pharisees just dismissed that. If you turn over a few more pages, chapter 11, verses 43 and 44, Jesus raises a dead guy. He raises Lazarus, but he wasn't just a dead guy. It wasn't like they just embalmed him and put him in the tomb. Uh, One of the sisters, I think it's Martha, When Jesus says, open the tomb up, she's like, no, no, he's going to smell. This is a stinking dead guy. Uh, And and we're going to all regret this decision if you open that tomb. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And and the soul of Lazarus returns to the body and Lazarus comes out of the, the grave. Very different from any other. There were resurrection of the dead in the Old Testament, but it's not three days dead. It's not stinking and starting to decompose dead. But Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, and he comes forth. Chapter 12, verse 37, concluding the the, the first portion of the gospel, which was emphasizing the the signs of Jesus. And then chapter 13 to 21 is emphasizing the the glory of Jesus. But in, in winding down his presentation of who Jesus is to the nation of Israel, look at chapter 12, verse 37. But though he had done so many signs before them, they still were not believing in him. He did so many miracles and they refused to believe. It reminds me of Pharaoh in the Old Testament, right? Where he sees all of these plagues coming upon his entire land, some of them coming upon Egypt, but not upon the land of Goshen where the Israelites are. right? And he sees all of these things and he continues to harden his heart. He, he refuses to repent. He refuses to believe. That's the, the people uh, there during Jesus' time have that same hardening of their own hearts. They have a moral responsibility to respond to what they have seen, and they refuse. And, and what Jesus says here, back in chapter 15, not only have they seen it, but now they have both seen and how have they responded to what they have seen. They have seen and they have hate it. What they have seen Jesus do has not led them to worship him. It's led them to hate him. There's an an animosity. The miracles of Jesus declare who he is and people's response to his miracles really declare where they are in their relationship to God. And that's what Jesus came to, to do. He, he came to be a dividing line. And how you respond to him uh, separates all of humanity. Makes me think of Luke chapter 2. When Mary and Joseph brought Jesus up to uh, the temple to be dedicated. 
they spoke to, to Simeon there. In Luke chapter 2, verse 33, And his father and mother were, were marveling at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul as well, that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. It's what every mother wants to hear about her newborn son, right? Like, this boy is going to reveal hearts this boy is going to break your heart for different reasons usually it's rebellion but actually for mary it's going to be perfection and then an unjust death this is what happens the 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 miracles of jesus who he is and what he came to do that's going to reveal how we respond to that is going to reveal what's really taking place in our hearts One old pastor, H.A. Ironside, tells a story uh, to illustrate this point. He says years ago in the time where the uh, inland uh, Africa missions were were just kind of opening up, the wife of an African chief uh, came uh, and visited or walked past a a mission station, uh, and the missionary had put up a small mirror uh, on a tree outside of his home. And and the woman glanced at uh, this mirror, uh, and she uh, coming out of kind of a a pagan environment, had never seen uh, her own face so clearly. She'd never seen the the paintings on her own face and her own scowl. And so now she looks at the mirror and she's she's gazing at her own face and she's startled and she asks the missionary, uh, who is this horrible looking person in the tree? And the missionary says, it's not the tree. Uh, This is glass that's reflecting your own face. Uh, and and she couldn't she couldn't comprehend and, and believe that, uh, and so uh, when she was starting to to slowly track with what the the missionary was saying, uh, she says I, I must have uh, this glass. How much will it cost for you to sell it to me? And and the missionary really didn't want to to sell the mirror, but she insisted so strongly. He's like, ah, this is going to cause a, a conflict if I don't do this. So he sold her uh, the mirror, and she took it, uh, and she said, I will never have it making faces at me again. And she threw the mirror to the ground and broke it. She beheld herself and didn't like what she saw. So what was the solution? I need to, I need to, to lash out against what is revealing myself to me. That's our normal response. When Jesus reveals our hearts, we're either going to be heartbroken to see what he sees and what's really there. We're going to be broken in spirit. We're going to have a broken and contrite heart. And we're going to turn to him in repentance, pleading for mercy and grace. Or we're going to harden our hearts. We say, I don't like what I see there, but I really don't want to change. This is what Jesus does. And the world doesn't like it. We don't like it. The world beheld Jesus and his works. They hated him. They hated not only him, but God the Father. Again, notice in both of these uh, sections, verses 22 and 23 and in 24, Jesus ties together whatever affection you have for Jesus is the same affection that you have for God. Inseparable. This is a tremendous warning of the danger that comes with the Word of God. If we, if we approach the Word of God and we are not transformed, it's like James 1. 
For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he looked at himself and has gone away, and he immediately forgot what kind of person he was. We have to to beware of how we respond to the word of God and the works of Christ. Do we believe that he lived a perfect life, that he died a sacrificial death, and that he rose again on the third day? His ultimate miracle was the resurrection. How do we respond to that? We must not reject them. But I would also say we, we must be careful about even reading them with apathy. Reading them with apathy, saying, oh, well, that's, that's good. That's a truth for me to just kind of tuck away. And we dismiss, we separate out the moral implication of who Jesus is and what he has done. And say, there's no need for me to respond to that. No, this is, this is one of those bits of knowledge that you must respond to. You can't just tuck it away and say, well, I don't have to do anything with that. No, you must. You must respond. You must look to Christ in faith or there is greater ramifications for your soul throughout all of time and eternity. This is that second implication of of Christ's presence, his ministry here on the earth and the written word in front of you. That his words remove excuses and his works reveal hearts. But there's another implication of Christ's ministry. We see it in verse 25, that rejection of Christ confirms Scripture. Verse 25, he says, But this happened, speaking of the world's hatred and the the nation of Israel's hatred for him and for God. But this happened to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without cause. And the word at the beginning of this verse, the, the but uh, it, at the beginning, is a very strong contrast. There's multiple uh, words for contrasting in the Greek, and this is a very strong contrast. So the, the world has rejected, but strong contrast. God's plan is moving forward. This is all according to the plan of God. And there is a rich irony embedded in this verse, as the Apostle John loves irony. He has a great sense of humor. Well, what he is emphasizing here is uh, the Jews rejected Christ, and they stand condemned, not by some other source, but they stand condemned by their own holy scriptures. They condemn themselves. And he says their own law, and he's using the term law here, not just to refer to the first five books of the Old Testament, but to to refer to the entire Old Testament. And what he's citing actually comes from the Psalms. And it could be Psalm 35, verse 19, but it's more than likely uh, from Psalm 69. I want want you to to turn back there. And this is where there's, there's times where, as I study God's Word, I am amazed by... The, the theological depth of it. And, and what Jesus is, is quoting here, Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is a messianic psalm, similar to what we've you know, studied in weeks gone by as we looked at Psalm 22 this summer. Psalm 69 is quoted eight separate times in the New Testament. And it's, a, it's profound. 
And, and Jesus is quoting from verse 4, where David writes, he says, Those who hate me without cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. What I did not steal, I then have to restore. So that, well, what David is writing about is how he, he suffered without cause, that he was uh, unjustly attacked and pursued uh, on numerous occasions, but most notably by King Saul. Uh, he's chased and running for his life. He's done nothing to deserve it, but this is what he is experiencing. Uh, and David is a, is a foreshadowing. His life experience foreshadows the experience of uh, the life of the Messiah who's in the line of David. And this is, this is profound of what, what David is, is saying just in that verse. And again, if Jesus is going to go and, and to be arrested uh, just in, in a couple of chapters here in John's gospel. Uh, and when he's tried, there's going to be three separate occasions where th- whoever is standing in judgment over him, uh, P- Pilate uh, or uh, Herod, uh, they're going to say he's not worthy of death. But he's going to be tried and, and executed ultimately. But what's profound about Psalm 69 is there is also a concern in this psalm uh, that others would not also receive the same reproach that David is experiencing. Uh, Look at verse 6 in Psalm 69. May those who hope for you not be ashamed through me, O Lord Yahweh of hosts. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel, because for your sake I have borne reproach. Dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and a foreigner to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So within that verse, which was cited earlier in John's gospel, when Jesus cleanses the temple, uh, it says that zeal for his house, the Lord's house, consumed him and drove him to act. And that's what we saw there in John chapter 2. And then the second part of that, the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. What was Jesus saying? Why does the world hate him and hate his followers? Because they don't know and they hate God himself. And what does it say right here? The reproaches of those who reproach God, you have fallen upon me, the, the speaker, Christ. Verse 10, when I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. And when I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. And those who dwell at the gate moan about me, and I am the, the drunkard's songs. Meaning he's so hated by everybody that even the drinking songs are about him. That's the emphasis there. That's how hated he is. And what's amazing here is if you look at that context in that in Psalm 69, David has a concern that those around him would not bear the same reproach that he himself is experiencing. And what is uh, the Messiah? What is Jesus saying to his disciples right here in John 15? You're going to bear the same reproach that I'm going to experience. And then what is John, uh, what is John going to record in John 17, the high priestly prayer? Jesus is going to be praying for those that he's leaving in the world that are going to face persecution. He says, Lord, preserve them. Don't take them out of the world, but help them to stand strong and united here. There's a profound theological unity between Psalm 69 and the ministry of Christ here uh, in the New Testament and specifically in John's gospel. The world has a hatred and rejection of God that spans across time and space. And Jesus coming and presenting himself to the world didn't, didn't change that. 
The world still hates God. They still hate whoever he sends. And this is the, the playing out and the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 2. If you're still there in, in Psalm 69, turn to the very beginning of this altar. Psalm 2. And the Apostle Peter is going to cite this psalm and this passage when he's going to be preaching to this same group of people who, who crucified Christ. He's going to apply this passage to them. Psalm 2, beginning in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate on a vain thing? And the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, literally his Messiah. The world takes their stand against God and against his, the one that he has anointed and sent into the world. And look at verse 4. Or verse 3, they say, let us tear their fetters apart. Let them cast away their cords from us. They don't want anything to do with God. God's uh, authority over them feels like shackles and bondage to them. But, but here's the, the key. Their rejection and their rebellion doesn't have any impact upon God. Look at verse 4. Like the nations are plotting rebellion and what's God doing? He's not pacing back and forth in heaven wondering what he's going to do. What is he doing? He's sitting in the heavens and he laughs. He mocks at their rebellion. And that's what we see playing out. Jesus is informing his disciples so they know ahead of time what has taken place, why the world is going to be attacking them, and why he himself is going to be crucified. And he's, he's encouraging them, and he wants them to know and to understand. Ultimately, the world's rejection of Jesus changes nothing. And actually, only all it does is it serves to confirm the Scriptures. Their hatred and animosity are just proving what Jesus has been saying all along. And so the world testifies against itself, proving the scriptures have accurately predicted their actions against God and, and his Messiah. This is what we see all throughout the pages of scripture. Humanity's attempts at rebellion only serve to confirm the sovereignty of God. And this is what we have seen and heard from Christ today. Now, there are, are serious moral implications for knowing about Jesus. If you have heard his word, all of your excuses have been removed. If you have read about, if you have beheld his miracles, your heart is revealed. How are you going to respond? And rejecting him doesn't in any way, shape, or form mean that he's not the Messiah. I mean, Rejecting him doesn't dethrone him and, and bring him down. It just actually confirms your hard-heartedness, and it confirms the very scriptures that you are trying to reject. Christ's words and, and works reveal sin. That's what we need to see here. But at, at the very same time, they also are the remedy for sin. Now, and, and this is something to, to think about and to, to comprehend. The words of Christ, they, they cut us, they pierce, uh, but they also heal us. Uh, I love what we just sang uh, in that last song, O Church Arise. There was, there was a lyric there that with, with the sword that makes the wounded whole, that, that's the, the truth about Christ. That, that's the good news of the gospel. Uh, that what you see when you look to Jesus and, and the righteousness of Christ just shows us for exactly who we are. We fall so short concerning what true holiness and perfection looks like. That's what God requires of us. And, and we all fall short. But the words of Christ cut us and heal us at the same time. 
And his words cut because they tell us the truth about ourselves. The truth hurts, right? It's painful when, you're, when your friend tells you something that's true. And then you have a choice to do, well, do I want to admit this or do I want to pretend like it's not true? The words of Christ cut, but they also show our sinfulness before a holy God. Take one verse from what we've studied in the past from John's gospel. John eight twenty four. Jesus says, therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. That's truth. You will die in your sins. That, that's part of the curse. Everybody who has ever lived, what, what is our, our common uh, destiny? Death. He said, therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. There, there's the cut. You're a sinner and you're going to face judgment, but there's also the healing. Here's the balm. If you look to Jesus in faith, there's hope, there's restoration, there's reconciliation, there's forgiveness. This is the truth of life that we must come to grips with. This is the knowledge that we must respond to. Unbelief is wounded by the truth of Christ's words. Right? When, when, when the scriptures, when Christ speaks and says, you're a sinner in need uh, or deserving of judgment, that hurts. We don't want to think of ourselves in that way. Usually what we say is, oh, I'm, I'm pretty good. We like to compare ourselves to others who are worse. I'm not as bad as that person. You should see my neighbor, God, that guy. Unbelief is wounded by the truth of Christ's words. But unbelief also rejects the healing of Christ's words. It acknowledges uh, the pain but doesn't turn to Christ in, in faith. I love what one of the Puritans, John Flavel, says. He says, how unreasonable is the sin of unbelief by which the sinner rejects Christ and all of his mercies and benefits that alone can cure his misery. He refuses Christ who comes with heavenly light and wisdom. He is so in love with his bondage to sin that he will never accept Christ nor the redemption he brings. How men, oh, how men act as if they were in love with their own ruin. They accept a cure for anything but their souls. And they undo themselves by rejecting Christ in his gracious offers. That's what unbelief does. It's pierced by the word of Christ that, that cuts and speaks the truth. And it rejects all of the offers of Christ. And I would plead with you, don't do that. Re- respond to both in the right way. When, when Christ speaks the truth, when he reveals your heart to you, acknowledge that and agree with that. And then at the very same time, embrace the offer of Christ of faith and repentance and reconciliation and forgiveness. There is hope and healing to be found. But again, to quote Psalm 2, refuge is never found from Christ. It's only refuge is found by running to Christ. At the end of that psalm, the kings and rulers are told to go and kiss the son, pay homage to the son. Take refuge in him. And that is what we are all must do because there's an implication to knowing about Christ. And if you know about Christ and you haven't responded, it's just a greater condemnation of your soul on the day of judgment. And we have to to wrestle with that. Do I really believe that? There's news that you must respond to. And I would urge all of you to look to Christ in faith. If you have more questions, come talk to me. Come talk to your growth group leader. Talk to somebody who invited you today. But you must respond to the message about Jesus. His words cut, but they also heal. Amen?